Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N podsurvey.com slash artofman thanks for your help Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast for millennia stone lifting was an important part of cultures around the world and its significance went far beyond feats of strength stone lifting was part of weddings and funerals used as a job interview to assess someone's fitness as a farmhand and included in rites of passage and test of all-around manhood. Much of the world's ancient stonelifting culture has been forgotten, and rocks that used to be hoisted regularly in town squares and cemeteries have been sitting untouched for hundreds of years. David Keown, an Irish world champion kettlebell lifter turned amateur folklorist, has set out to change that. In the last couple of years, David has been on the hunt for Ireland's legendary lifting stones. He uses oral and written history to search them out and learn their stories, and then hoist them himself, once again putting wind under stones that haven't been picked up for centuries. Today on the show, David shares the significance of stone lifting around the world, and specifically in Irish culture, the practicalities of lifting a 400-pound stone off the ground, and what stone lifting has taught him about being a man. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash stonelifting. David Keown, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brett. Really appreciate it, man. So you are a world champion kettlebell lifter who has also become an expert archaeologist and folklorist specializing in discovering lost Irish lifting stones. And we're going to talk about your work with lifting stones here on the show. But before we do, let's talk about your fitness and health journey. You got into the strength training game late in your life. What was your life like before you discovered kettlebells and what got you started with swinging? Yeah, good question. Good question. So Brett, when I started off, like I said, I only got into any fitness or, or strength or training of any kind in, at the age of 31, you know. Before that, I was mainly into music and art. I met my wife in art college. So um, playing in bands, you know, party scene and like going out in the night times and, you know, having great crack that way, you know, all, all the way through my late teens and 20s was party life and drinking and all the rest that goes with it. But then, you know, when you hit your 30s, can your body kind of says, hold on a second, kid, you got to start looking after yourself now, you know? So I got to 31 and I was just in a really bad place, kind of mentally and physically, just not in a good place, not happy with how my my body was responding, you know? Um, at that stage, I had young kids. I couldn't run around after them. So I went to a doctor and the doctor was pretty much saying, look, we're going to have to put you on X, Y, and Z medication from now on, you know, um, heart medication, blood pressure, asthmatic inhalers, all that kind of stuff. So I went out with a, a doctor's note to get all this medication. And I decided 
how about if I get fit first, just to myself, you know, let's see if I can get fit and if that will help. If it doesn't help, I'll take the medication anyway. I have nothing else to lose. So I started running. And I remember the first time I went running, I couldn't run 100 yards. I remember trying to run up to the top of my estate and having to go home really badly defeated. You know, lungs falling out, thought I was going to die. <laughs> you know, just in a really, really bad place. But um, I went out the next morning. I was going out in the morning, so no one would see the, the kind of heavy guy running. You know, I was up around 100 kgs, maybe over it. Um, which for my height, I'm, I'm only five foot nine, so that's it's not a healthy place to be. But I started going out every morning running, and I was running. And after about four to six weeks, I was hitting five k. Um, my breathing, my respiratory problems, which I was diagnosed as asthmatic, that was gone. My blood pressure was coming down. I was eating healthier. I was just feeling better. You know, I never really understood what feeling healthy felt like because I never done any training in my life or, or sports. The whole way through, I was on a totally different path. But then I started feeling what feeling healthy felt like. I was like, this feels great. So I just kept the running going. And with about six months later, I ran my, my first marathon, which kind of was the, the light bulb moment for me. It was like um, an epiphany moment. It was like, you've done something difficult that not a lot of people in the world do. Kind of what else can you do? And from there, I got into kettlebell training, um, like just hit classes and just training in a gym with, with light kettlebells, 12s, 16s, 20 kgs. But the gym I was in just so happened to have the only kettlebell sport team in Munster, which is the um, the province I live in in Ireland, and just got in, into kettlebell training then and got into the sport end of it because I was told like your your body will suit it. You've got long arms, you know, you've got a short torso, so you'll find it easy to rest in like rack position and stuff. So just got into this crazy Russian endurance strength sport in, in 2012 and just had some fantastic years with that, you know. Are you still competing professionally? No, I, I'm, I am, I set myself goals, Brett, at the very start of my kettlebell career. Because I remember watching, I go down to 2013 and watching the European champions were held just about 15 minutes down the road from me and seeing these guys lifting two thirty-two kilo kettlebells for 10 minutes straight, clean a jerk, you know, and just being amazed, amazed at, that a, a human body could do that. Because I was lifting two sixteens at that stage and that was difficult, you know, to get to 10 minutes. But watching these guys was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to get up to the 32s. So I trained like a demon for the next couple of years. And I got onto the amateur Irish um, kettlebell sport team in 2014, lifting 224s. Now, believe me, 224s for distance is difficult. Go out and pick up a pair of uh, 24 kilo kettlebells and clean and jerk them even 10 times in a row and tell me how you feel. So we were doing that for between 60 to, to 100 reps in sessions. Um um, 78 reps actually won me the uh, the world title in 2015. So like it's 78 times in a row without putting them down. So you can imagine how attritional that is on your, you know, on your cardio. So it took a lot of technique training and a lot of work. But um, I set myself my goals, like I said, I, I won my world championships, I won my European championships, nationals, set a world record, competed on 32s, got my master of sports, hit everything I wanted to hit. And I bowed out gracefully at the end of 2019. Well, this is interesting. I don't know much about the the sport aspect of kettlebell. So it's not just a strength component. It's actually an endurance event. It's more than endurance. It's, it, I call it strength endurance. It, do you know what the closest thing it reminds me of, Brad, is um, Olympic rowing. Okay. So it's it's just to be able to put in max effort for a short, in short bursts for a long distance. You know, so I mean, you think about it, you're lifting 232s. Um, you're lifting them for, for 10 minutes straight. So, I mean, I was doing about between four to six RPM with that. So you have to be able to relax yourself in certain positions. You can't stand there braced with a couple of 32s for 10 minutes. Your body just won't be able to do it, you know? So it was all about technique and using your body as efficiently as possible. It's actually a really cool sport. So you did the kettlebell training. How did you discover stone lifting? 
Yeah. Like I said, I'd hit all these goals and I'm just so proud to say that I could do that, you know, especially when things like, like world records and stuff, which still stands, thank God. But um, I just done this really cool thing in my life. You know, I finished that in 2019. I'm just kind of, what am I going to do now? You know, what's next? And then COVID struck. So like they took COVID very, very seriously. Like the very stringent lockdowns over here. You know, we were in a 5K lockdown. We couldn't leave. There was Gardaí on the streets. It was just crazy couple of years. So I had no access to a gym. And I only had like maybe just two kettlebells in the shed because I'd done all my training in the gym like everybody does. You go to the gym, I was in the gym three or four days a week and all the training equipment was there. I didn't need to buy anything. But all of a sudden that was taken away from me. So all I had at the back, like I said, I met my wife in art college. I had this large stone carving that my wife done in art college. Beautiful um, stone carving on a plinth. And I weighed that on the kitchen scales over COVID because we were in this like really tight lockdown. It weighed 61 kilos. I was like, that's an interesting weight, you know? So I started picking that up and I started really enjoying the feel or the primal aspect of stone lifting. It kind of flicked a switch inside me. You know what I mean? So I was doing that just as a bored human being over COVID, just needing to lift something. I was lifting that stone. And then I saw that Rogue Fitness. I don't know if you've seen them. And if you haven't, you really should. The, the Rogue Fitness documentaries on, on stone lifting, one in, in Scotland, one in Iceland, and one in the Basque region in Spain. And they were just speaking so passionately about what stone lifting meant, the history, the heritage, the culture, what it meant to their nation to be lifting stone. And it just, I was enamored. I just fell in love with it. I loved the history aspect of the stone lifting. Um, and that kind of led me down the rabbit hole then of looking for Irish ones, you know? Well, uh, let's talk about stone lifting in general as a cultural practice. I think people have likely seen stone lifting in strongman competitions. Exactly. I think even in CrossFit, there's the Atlas Stone, they'll do that. It's, but it's, it, this isn't just some sort of made-up sport for the modern age. As no. you said, there's a rich and ancient tradition of heavy stone lifting found around the world. So you mentioned Scotland, they have it in Iceland, they have it in Spain. Before we get into Irish stone lifting specifically, I mean, can you talk about stone lifting in general? Like besides Scotland and Iceland and Spain, where else do we see heavy stone lifting? And what was the purpose of stone lifting? First of all, I suppose there, there were so many different purposes to it. Um, and it's in so many cultures around the world. I mean, it's the most ancient form of training. I mean, back in ancient Rome, you have it in ancient Greece. I mean, there's a stone sitting in a, a Greek museum and it has carved on the side of it, a Bible the son of Fola lifted this stone over his head. And that stone is, I think it was 130 kilos. And that carving was done over 2000 years ago. So, I mean, there's stone lifting goes all the way back. I mean, before gyms, which is a relatively new thing, all you had was was what was the, in the natural landscape. So heavy stones, heavy tree trunks. It was just that form of training. So it's it, it goes all the way back, as far back as you can imagine. It's also very, very it's huge in Japan. There's a massive amount of stone lifting in Japan. In the, like, so the Pacific Islands, there's a massive culture of it there. In Africa, there's an all over, pretty much all over Europe. So it, it goes all the way back, like I said. So the purposes of them, I mean... So like, say there's, there's three stones in, in Iceland and they're called the Dritvik stones and they denoted, there were fishermen's testing stones and they denoted how much of the catch you would get on a fishing boat. So you had the Amlodi, which was 24 kilos. That's called the weakling stone. Then you had the half Dreytinger, which was 54 kilos. That's the lightest stone you were allowed to get on the boat with. So you'd have to lift that and you only got a quarter of a share of the catch. Then you could lift the half Sturker, which is 100 kilos. If you could lift the 100 kilo stone, you were half starker, you were half strong, which meant you got half a share. And if you could lift the 154 kilo full starker stone, you got a full share. And you could sit in the middle of the boat and you were one of the, the top rowers. So it was a way of 
earning your keep. It was a way of earning your money. Your strength was your worth, how good a husband or provider you were. Also, there's very similar in, in Sweden with, um, with farmhand testing stones. You had the half strong or the full strong stones. If you were a farmhand, you're going to have to be clearing a lot of land. So their test, their job interview was to lift a stone, you know. Then there was all, just all these feet, feet of strength stones, you know, just say someone who wanted to immortalize themselves for all time. And there's a load of them around Iceland and also quite a few of them around Ireland for somebody to show their great strength and um, lifted a stone and said, like, a man would consider himself a good man if he could repeat that feat, you know, and people would come from all over. They were lifted at funeral games as respect for the dead. They were lifted at weddings as respect for the living. I mean, their, their uses go, I mean, there's so many, I could talk about that all day, but they're more, more than just picking up something heavy. They had cultural value. They all had cultural worth, you know? Yeah. Well, speaking of like doing lifting stones at a wedding, isn't there like a scene in Braveheart where they're throwing big, heavy rocks at a wedding? Exactly. And also you talk about, and what other archaeologists have found, these were like, oftentimes these are a rite of passage for men. Like this is how you determined exactly. if you were a man. Exactly. Um, very much so in Scotland that they had these um, rite of passage stones. So to become from boyhood to manhood, you had to be able to lift the clan testing stone. And I went over to Scotland um, about three years ago and I'd done that. We lifted 16 clan testing stones in one day, went around to all the different glens and every glen had its own testing stone, Brett, you know, and every stone was slightly different, like weighed slightly different. But to become a man in the clans, you had to be able to lift this stone either to plinth or to chest, depending on the glen you're in, you know. So because they were like boyhood testing stones, they were all slightly lighter. You're talking anywhere between like 97 kilos up to probably about 120. But I mean, that's still pretty heavy for a stone. I mean, you, you might laugh at it, anybody who does deadlifting out there, but you go and pick out a 100 kilo stone, or 120 kilo stone and pick up a 120 kilo barbell are two totally different things. But um, they're sort of said, yeah, the boyhood testing stones and then you had the, the warrior stones. So to become a warrior, then these were heavier stones. So like to become like a, a bodyguard for the fief lord or to become a warrior in the ranks of maybe the fina you had to lift a certain stone. So, I mean, the one that really struck me was there's a Fina testing stone. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of the Fina, but the Fina were a very famous Irish and Celtic warrior band who were mainly in Ireland, but also in Scotland. And part of their initiation to become, and like these guys were the best of the best. They were like the SAS of 2000 years ago, you know? So to become the Fina, one of the Fina warriors, one of the tests was to lift the Fina stone. And the Fina stone was 127 kilos of dollarite. And you had to be able to pick that up the chest and walk with it. So, like I said, it's these rites of passage and that really drew me in because it's something that we don't have anymore, you know, and I feel it's something that we're, we're kind of sorely missing, you know, I mean, it's because it, it really brings a culture together. It brings, you know, a clan together, you know, everybody used to gather around and watch these rites of passage. And then like, you know, you became a man, you know, you were, you were a man because you'd done something difficult. You know, I just, I find that wonderful. Yeah. The clan stones, I know there's a Mackay clan stone in Scotland somewhere, it's been on my bucket list to go, like make a pilgrimage, seriously, and go lift it. Yeah, yeah. man, you got you got to go. If you can, if you if you go, you'll just absolutely fall in love with it. I mean, I went to Scotland and driving around the the Highlands, it it was just magical. Is all I can call it. You know, it, it really the grow, what we call the grow, the love for stone lifting was cemented in driving around Scotland and meeting all these people because it's not just the lifting the stone; it's the actual area it's in. You know, it's the meeting of the people, it's the hearing the stories and the history. That's that's what I draw you in. Oh, well, let's talk about Irish uh, stone lifting specifically. That's what you're an expert in. And something you point out is that unlike these other stone lifting cultures, we know a lot about them, like in Scotland, in Spain, in Iceland, etc. The Irish stone lifting culture kind of got lost to history. 
when and why did that happen? Why did it disappear? Right. Okay. There's a lot involved in that. Um, I suppose a lot of it would have to do with our relationship with, with England, you know, with imperialism and colonialism. We were a colonized nation up until just under 100 years ago. So a lot of our ancient rites of passage and our strength was kind of taken away from us along with our culture and our language, you know. Um, I'm not going to get too nationalist about this, but um, a lot of that was taken from us, which then culminated in the Great Famine or genocide, whatever you want to look at it, in the 1840s, where the Irish people were, were literally just living on potatoes because that's all they could afford. And then there was a massive potato blight in the 40s, which killed half the nation. Half the nation died or emigrated between 1845 to 1848. So you can imagine a lot of stones, a lot of stories, and a lot of people from these areas where the stones were lifted either died or moved to America or, you know, moved to Britain or moved to, to Europe. So it, it was this huge, huge cultural rift that happened, you know. So, and you can imagine, I mean, if people are dying from starvation, the last thing you want to do is lift something heavy off the ground. You can barely lift yourself up off the ground. So that would probably be the main reason for this stop because all these historians and all these people I'm meeting in these areas and all these old books that I'm finding, the cutoff point was pretty much 1845. So a lot of the culture was just lost. It was just dead. Probably like, you know, through no fault of our own. And all these stories were lost. You know, some of them, thankfully, some of them were written down. But like us, the Irish people, our, our culture is an oral culture. You know, we're a storytelling people. You know, I think we're kind of renowned for it worldwide. And the stories stayed, you know, father to son and mother to daughter. The, the stories of the stones remained and they were carried on down through the years. And I'm still finding, Brett, when I go to these places, there's always someone who will know about it. You know, there's always somebody who still knows the story that was passed down from his father and his great-grandfather and all the way back. It's only a couple of people. You know, you, you were probably within maybe two generations of this being lost altogether. But that's why I'm just so happy to be able to bring, like, to be part of the resurgence and the kind of the, the re-emergence of, of Irish strength culture, but also Irish strength. You know, I mean, we were beaten down for so long from, like I said, colonialism and from other things as well, you know, but to be part of this, there's this whole cultural wave coming back, even in the last, you can feel it in the last five years, people are so proud now to be Irish and their culture's coming back, the language is coming back and our strength is now coming back. And I'm just, it's such an honor to be part of that. What role did stonelifting play in Irish culture? Yeah, I mean, like, so all these stories are so cool because there was, every Sunday, there was what they call the trials of strength. So, because, I mean, people had nothing, you know, it was probably a culture of boredom as well. So, I mean, people used to meet up on Sundays at the local crossroads or in places of cultural merit, you know. So, like, say, at, at wharfs or, or like, um, harbours. So, all the men would meet up before or after mass and they would lift these stones on the Sundays, you know. And you got great social status for being able to lift some of these stones. I mean, who could lift them the highest? You know, the men spoke them with honour and, you know, the women might find you more attractive and... You know, that was the, the trial of strength on the Sundays. And also they were very important at funeral games, like you were saying with the Scottish ones. There was a lot of these graveyards, like um, probably about 70% of the stones I'm finding are in graveyards. And these were the testing stones of the funeral games. Like funerals pre-1840s used to last maybe two or three days. So they would have a whole day of funeral games, like almost like a, a celebration of life. You know, so they had like collar and elbow wrestling, they'd have running, they'd have leaping, and they'd have stone lifting. So they were part of, of the culture, 
you know, they were deeply ingrained in who we are as a people. And it's great to see them coming back now. Okay, let's walk us through about how you find these stones. Because you had to become, like you weren't an archaeologist or a folklorist before you found these stones, but you had to become one to discover them. Where does your research start? Yeah, so um, the research, it, it used to start, because when I started this, like there was no one had any interest in this, only me, you know? Um, it was just me going off on this kind of innocent journey by myself. So my first stone that I found was, it was just such an awesome story. Because <laughs> um, like I went onto Google, Brett, and I just typed in Irish lifting stones. And, you know, nothing came up. But after a little bit of research, I found there was a, a man called Dr. Conor Heffernan, who is a professor actually up in Ulster University. And he had a piece written about the possibility of Irish lifting stones. He's a professor of like sociology and strength history. So I was reading his piece and he, he mentioned a man called Limo Flaherty. Limo Flaherty is um, a very famous Irish writer, essayist and short story writer. And he'd written a story called The Stone. So like Limo Flaherty's out of print now, but so I, I ordered his book and then I got this book called The Stone. And like, it's only about a nine page short story, but the way he described the stone and this story was so vivid. I was like, that has to be a real thing, you know, or, or unless he's the best writer I've ever read. The way he describes the stone, the area it's in, the way it made him feel when he lifted it. I'm like, this guy had lifted this stone. I mean, there's one piece in particular, I'll, I'll, te- I'll read it to you if you don't mind. So this is an excerpt from, from Liam O'Flaherty's story that's called The Stone. It was a round block of granite and it sparkled as the sunshine shone on the particles of mica in its surface. It lay on the ground on a clear space between the rocks. All around it, there were bruised stones, bruised to a powder. And where it lay, there was a little hollow. That stone had lain in that place as long as the oldest traditions in the village could remember. And from time immemorial, it had been the custom of the young men in the village to test their strength by lifting it. I was like, that's just such a cool line. That grabbed me straight away. And this is on Inish Moor, which is, which is a small island off the west coast of Galway. So I was like enamored with this st- story. So I just started researching the Aran Islands. And I found that there was a woman online who was speaking on a Reddit thread about 10 years ago called Fiona. And she was speaking to the great Peter Martin, who was the stone finder over in Scotland. And she was like, yeah, the story that Liam O'Flaherty wrote about is, is true. She said, it's a real thing. The stone is a real stone. It's down on this pathway in Gorton Coppel. And it's, it's, I think it's still there. She's, she, she, she always written out and read it. I was like, are you serious? So straight away, I jumped into campervan. My friends, we drove like four and a half hours over to Galway. I got, got on the ferry. And walked down, sorry, cycled down to this place, a 25-minute cycle. And we got to this rough boulder stream pathway in, in Gortner Coppel. And I was lo- just looking around and like, <laughs> the Iron Islands is just stone. It's like walking on the surface of the moon. It's just rocks. It's this glacial karst landscape. There's just rocks everywhere, you know? So like, how am I going to know which rock is the rock? <laughs> you know, there's, there's tens of thousands of them here. But I was walking down and like, I had this book in front of me and I was reading it. And it said it, it lay in the ground in a clear space between the rocks. And I was walking down this pathway and I could see this pink stone in a field of grey, just this pink stone standing out like a beacon. And I walked down and there it was with these bruised stones all around it. And I was like, That's, that has to be it. Do you know when something calls you? Like, that has to be it, you know? So it just so happened that there was a guy giving a walking tour with a couple of Americans. And I went up and I accosted him and said, look, excuse me. I said, I have to ask you, sorry for interrupting. Do you know anything about the lifting stone? Oh, yeah, that's it down there, he said. And I was like, the pink one? He said, yeah, the pink one there on the patch of grass. He said, yeah, we call it the Mulan. The Mulan Portfail and Dune. He had a name for it as well, you know? So um, that was it. Like, that was our first lifting stone found in Ireland. And it came from a story, a book written back in 1927. 
And I'd say no one had probably lifted it since 1927 because no one had li- in living memory had lifted it on the island because I asked a lot of the old islanders. So that was the very first one, which just kind of almost fell into my lap. The next two or three was the same. And then I went on to it, the, the Irish uh, government, one of the best things they ever done back in 1927, they put folklore on the, the school curriculum. So they said to the school kids, like say 12-year-old kids, go back to your mom and dad and, and granddads and ask them about your local traditions or folklore in your local area. So for three years, folklore was on the, the school curriculum and all the children in all the schools in all of Ireland collected tens of thousands of stories about, you know, a- anything that happened, whether it be battles or old mythologies, but also there was folk heroes and uh, local heroes and, and strong men and strong women, Dina Kalula, they called them. And that's all collated and, and it's up in a library up in Dublin. So I just started reading that. They actually have it all digitized now online as well. It's called Dukas, dukas.ie. And I started scanning through Dukas and looking for stories of, of stones. And I found about eight or 10 from those old stories. But I mean, it's, it's amazing because like you said, you feel like Indiana Jones because you're reading through these old stories that are a hundred years old. And then you're, you're driving to these places and some of them are so old they're not even on Google Maps. And then you're just asking locals and they're, you know, some people might know, but then they point you to a guy who does know and he's like, yeah, it's just over there or across that field. And then you walk into this field and there might be this old room church and beside the church will be this totally out of place stone, which is the lifting stone of the area. You know, it's it's just been incredible. It's been an absolute adventure story over the past couple of years, you know. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family? When I'm gone, if something happens to me. Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. 
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. And as your work has gotten more publicity, are people coming out of the woodwork to share where stones are? Oh man, yeah, the difference now, you know, because like I said, it started off with me just like with a bill hook uh, in my car, just driving around Ireland, you know, and hacking through hedges and and, and sometimes find them, sometimes not. But now, because I just can't, I can't believe the publicity it's been getting, you know? It's been kind of jarring a little bit, but like in a good way, because now it's something I wasn't expecting. I was going to be doing this anyway, but people have lashed onto it. Like I said, it's this whole culture of resurgence that's happening over Ireland. There's this wave of national pride that's there now, you know, and people are, have just fallen in love with this journey. So there's people coming, like I said, coming out of the woodwork. There's I, literally, I'm just back from like Saturday, three days ago. I'm back with another find down in, in County Cork, you know, that a man said, I was just talking to a, a local woman, asking for directions. And she said, yeah, it's just down there past the lifting stone on the right-hand side. You know, he's like, what? What do you mean? Yeah, she had the lifting stone down there in the crossroads. And like, so I said, people in the area know, but nobody else knows, you know? So he phoned me straight away, David, you won't believe it. I'm just after, this, this stone's just have to fall into my lap. And we went down and we got to lift in that stone on Saturday. And it's, they're just, it's, it's nearly on the weekly now that there's people saying there's one here, there's one here, there's stories here. You know, my, my, my granddad said, my great granddad was talking to me. You know, it, it's just, it's awesome. People have, are falling in love with it now, to be honest with you. And you mentioned a lot of these stones are in cemeteries because they were used in funeral games, correct? Yeah, true, true. Yeah. And I think you mentioned, I think in an interview, the cemeteries also served as a, you're able to do it in secret. Because at the time, you know, within what you're talking about with the imperialism, there yeah. was an attempt to kind of squash these local traditions. And so the exactly. Irish would be like, well, we'll go to the cemetery at night and do this so they don't see us. Exactly. Well, you have like, you, you have hedge schools, they call them hedge priests who, who, who said Catholic mass 
in graveyards or in ditches, you know, or, or at um, mass stones, they call them. So just like at a prominent rock in the area, people would meet and they would say mass there, or they would be teaching children Irish because they couldn't teach it in schools. They weren't allowed to. So they were teaching children the Irish language in literally in ditches, you know, to keep to keep the culture alive. But there's a stone up in County Cavan, up in a place called Ochrim or Den. There's a stone called the Flag of Den. And the Flag of Den back in the 16th and 17th centuries was a mass stone. So this is where the, the Catholic priest would come and say mass on this stone. And there's a, a big cross carved into the top of it. It's about three and a half foot long, three foot wide, and there's a carved cross on the top of it. And that was used as a mass rock to say Catholic mass in a graveyard with people on the lookout for British soldiers, you know? So the history behind these things is incredible. I mean, that's 16th, 17th century when we were under penal law. But be, be before that, that stone was also used as what they call a pagan cursing stone. So, I mean, Ireland is also full of these cursing stones that if you could flip a stone over or turn it anti-clockwise, you could lay a, what they call a pishog or a curse on someone who had done you wrong. So this was a pagan cursing stone pre-Catholicism, which only came to Ireland maybe in the year 700. So, I mean, that stone is... The history behind it is absolutely unbelievable. So pagan cursing stone, then a Catholic altar stone, and then it was also used from the 17th century as a lifting stone. So the men at funerals, so all the strong men from the different parishes would see could they lift that stone to their knees. And if you could lift that massive flagstone to your knees, that was worth of you getting into Ducas or being spoken of with massive respect in your local area. And I'm really, really proud to say that I found that stone. It was really difficult to find because there's no one had cut the graveyard I was in in, in over 20 years. It was like the, the weeds were eight feet tall. I was there with a bill hook for two and a half hours and I, I managed to find that stone and I managed to get a lift on it up to my knees. So just, yeah, it was just an amazing moment. Like, I mean, the history in that thing is incredible. How many stones have you discovered so far? With, including last weekend of 31 with with um, another three coming in the next month with leads. So 31 found. 31. And then with all these stones, you do attempt to lift them, correct? Oh, I do more than attempt. You do? <laughs> all right, you do? Okay. I've, yeah. I've lifted I've lifted all bar one. So I'm really, really proud to say that because the Irish lifting stones, Brett, are massive. They're really, really heavy. You're talking average about 170 kilos. Wow. So, I mean, the, the, the Limo Flaherty stone is 171. Like the flag of Den is, is roughly 220, you know. So, I mean, they're, they're absolutely mahusive. What's the heaviest stone you've lifted and found? The heaviest stone, I think, would be the flag of Den um, okay. at 220. But, I mean, the one I've done last weekend, we made it at 203. That's not too far off, the one down in Cork. And, like, a lot of these, it was just, you had to get what they call getting the wind under them, getting the, the gue fua, the wind under it. So just to get it off the ground was the valid lift, you know? Okay. Okay. I was going to ask you the valid, so as long as you get it off the ground, you're good. Some of them, yeah, depend on the area. You know, there's all these different different rules in the different areas. Some of them, it was literally just to get the gui fua, get the wind under it. Some of them, it was to get them to your knees. Some of them was to get them to your, your chest. So it all depended on the area you're in, you know? What's the oldest stone you found? Oh, I mean, there's, there's, there's a good few of them are, are pre-Christian. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, there's one I found on the island of Inishbofin, um, which is an ancient enchanted island, actually, off the west coast of Mayo. That's a Boulogne stone. So Boulogne stone was a druidic offering stone, sort of like a druidic offering bowl to the old Celtic gods like like Lou or Cromcroach. And like you're talking two, two and a half thousand, maybe three thousand years old, you know, that that was used as a, de- as a, like a conduit to deities well before Christianity came here. So, I mean, you're talking thousands of years old. I mean, is there an estimate of how many stones there might be in Ireland? I mean, I remember talking to, to somebody on a podcast like this two years ago, and we just found the first one. 
you know, we'd found the Limo Flaherty stone. And I remember this being a huge deal. And I remember getting wicked emotional about it because like we'd finally gotten on the map. You know, we were back. We had one stone. And I was talking to a, um, a, a famous man called Stevie Shanks, whose dad, Jack Shanks, is one of the most prominent Dinny stone lifters in the world. And uh, Stevie saying, imagine if we got 10 stones. He was there. Imagine if we got 10, but double figures would not be incredible. And I remember thinking, you know, I hope so, but it's doubtful because I, I didn't know where to even look at that stage. So, I mean, for, for me to go to, from one to 31 in just under two years, I mean, I really think the sky's the limit on this because I think this was a nationwide culture. You know, it's not just concentrated in one area. It's a nationwide culture. And I think practically, I would say in the, almost every village in Ireland, every crossroads had a testing stone, you know, whether it was a potting stone or a lifting stone. So I'm thinking there could be hundreds. I think there could be hundreds over here. So you're not just finding these stones and lifting them. You're also cataloging the stories. You're, you've become a folklorist. Are there any stones that have a unique story that you're fond of? Oh, I mean, they're all incredible. I mean, they're, they're all of the stories, all of the stories are just amazing. You know, um, it, it's hard to pinpoint one down. Do you think in, in the likes of maybe something like magical attached to it? Or, yeah, let's or do that. I want like something magical. I want something mythical. So, I mean, the stone, let's, let's just say that the last one I found, you know, that's, it's called Cluck on Cahir Darug, which means the stone of the, the red chair. And it's at the red chair cross in Kildarry in County Cork. So it's called the red chair cross because the ancient high king of Munster, which is the province I live in in Ireland, was a man called Mahan. And he was killed at that cross in the year 976. And then his younger brother, Brian Baru, who was probably one of the most famous figures in, in Irish history, he became then the, the next king of Munster. And then he became the high king of Ireland. And he drove out the, the Vikings, the Danes, in, in the, the Battle of Clontarf. So, I mean, you're talking the history behind this, that thing is, is absolutely incredible. But I mean, the, the best mythological one I can think of is the Clochondara up in County Mayo, which is just unbelievable. It's like, um, it was, there's giant throwing stones all over Ireland, right? So, I mean, every glacial erratic in Ireland the mythology behind them was there was a giant who threw the stone from a mountaintop, right? So, I mean, they could be anything up to 60, you know, 100, 200 tons, massive, massive stones. But there was this giant throwing stone in, in Aukagaur up in County Mayor. And it said all the stones have that the giant put the mark of his hands in the top of the stone where he squeezes by soft clay. And this giant used to throw the stone around like a pebble. And then the Irish men in the area used to see where they are strong as the giant so they would also try and lift the stone. So I thought that was just the coolest story I'd ever heard. It was like, you're telling me that there's a, a stone that's related to an Irish giant, <laughs> you know, the marks of his hands, his fingerprints are on the top of the stone where he picked the stone up and squeezed it. And it's still there. So I went up to that place and like it's a five and a half hour drive from where I am in the bottom of Ireland. And I drove into this village and on the village green, right in the middle of the green was this massive stone with these huge fingerprint marks in the top of the stone, you know, thumbprint, fingerprint marks. And that's the giant's throwing stone of Ahagawa. And I got a lift on that, broke the ground with it, weighed it at 182 kilos. But I mean, there's mythology, there's lore. I mean, it's, it's like mythology and reality. And like that stone is the bridge in the middle of the two of them. You know what I mean? It's the bridge between both. And I, I think that's what stone lifting is, especially in Ireland. It's the intersection of mythology, folklore and reality. It's just incredible. Are you learning anything about the people and the men who have lifted these stones? Like, I mean, are you sort of learning a, the genealogy of these stones? 
Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's very important. I mean, I, I don't. It's not a lifting stone unless someone had lifted it before. So there's always a story about a man who had lifted it. I mean, there's one in Clahine in County Tipperary, where a man called Thomas Lonergan was the only man in the parish who could lift this stone. And up to two hundred men would come every Sunday and see could they pick the stone up, but nobody could pick it up. Only Thomas Lonergan. So he got massive respect. And it's a wicked awkward stone. I went down and found it's it's, it's a, a, like a rectangular shape, so it's very very hard to pick up. It weighs one hundred seventy seven point five kilos. And there's no, no one said how high he lifted it. I mean, I got it up myself up to about mid-calf, which is a pretty decent lift on, on an awkward stone. But um, I had Sean Urquhart, who was probably one of the best natural stone lifters in the world. He came over to me there over the summer and we'd done a stone lifting tour, the very first Irish stone lifting tour. And he picked that stone up to his chest and it was just one of the most amazing things I'd ever seen. It was, it was just incredible. You know, when you're blown away by something, you just, you, all you can do is laugh. You know, you're like, I can't believe I've seen that, you know. But all of these stones... There's always somebody who had lifted it before. And what you're doing is you're putting your hands where they put their hands anything up to a thousand, two thousand years ago. So I just think that's just so cool. You're reaching back to the past and you're grabbing onto these people through the stone, you know? Yeah, that is really cool. Is there a place where you're cataloging this so people, other people can see and learn about this or contribute? Are you doing this online? Yeah. I'm doing it online. I mean, I'm also writing a book. I'm in the process of I'm nearly finished writing the book, actually. The book is literally almost like a, a diary of my grail diary, I suppose you call it, of the finds, the meeting, the people, the stories, and the lifting of the stone, how it felt, all that kind of stuff. But if you want to find me online, I'm down as Indiana Stones <laughs> online. <laughs> Indiana Stones on Instagram. So if you hit me up on that, you'll just see me lifting a massive pink boulder. You can't miss me. And um, all of the stories are, are on that as well. On there. Well, let's talk about stone lifting. Let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, I want to lift one of these stones. Or, I, want to go, I want to go to Scotland and lift the Clan McKay, Mac K yep. stone. But here's the thing. If you deadlift 405 pounds, 500 pounds, 600 pounds, you might think, well, I'm really strong. Lifting a 400 pound stone, that is really difficult. Like what makes lifting a stone so hard? I mean, like, first of all, your surroundings dictate the lift. You're outside, you know, you're not in a nice, comfortable, warm gym. You're in Scotland, you're in, you're in Ireland, mainly in the west of Ireland. It's a lot of the time it's lashing rain, the ground is wet, it's muddy. Um, your footing is, isn't great, you know. Then you've got the texture of the stone. You know, it could be a very, very round stone, especially some of the ones in Scotland. They're very, very rounded. They've been run through rivers for thousands of years. So they're smooth like marble, you know, so your grip becomes an issue. You're also going down lower. You're going down like to grass level. You're going down to the ground. You're not picking up a nice knurled bar with chalk. You're picking up something that's on the ground. And the center of gravity is difficult. You know, it's it's awkward. It's oddly shaped. A lot of the ones in Ireland are very oddly shaped. So you have to find the center of gravity. And then you're pulling from a lower position. So like you're not pulling from a nice upright deadlift position. You're pulling from a much lower position. So like your glutes and your hamstrings and your hips have to be very, very strong. You know, it's a totally different thing. I mean, the way I, I describe it to people is if you watch the Arnolds, you know, I watch the Arnold Strongman events. You've guys over there who deadlift and maybe 450 kilos, well over 400 kilos. But they're lifting the, the Bill Auden tombstone, they call it, which is 186. And a lot of those guys can't even pick that stone up. You know, so you're talking like they're going well over double that in a deadlift and they can pick it up relatively easily but some of them can't pick up a 186 kilo stone even inside with tacky toes so it just goes to show you how difficult it is to pick up an oddly shaped object as opposed to something that's made to be lifted like a barbell is there like a technique you need to use so you don't injure yourself during the lift or is it just trial and error because i mean like with deadlift right right there's like a specific technique you use right you you set your back extend your lower back so your back's not rounded and then you 
you obviously you can't do that when you're lifting a stone. So how do you lift a stone without I mean, yourself a hernia? Everybody's like like yeah, yeah. Like everybody's biomechanics are different. You know, everybody's lever lengths are different. I mean, I'm lucky I got really long arms. So um I can get down to a nice neutral position, keep my back straight, and use my legs. You know, it's all legs. You know, of course your back has to be strong, but I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm feeling it in my, my hamstrings and my, my hips and my glutes and a little bit of lower back then as it comes up a bit higher, but it's pretty much a deadlift feel for me when I'm doing it. But I mean, I've seen guys lift with, with, with slightly around the backs, you know, and I know, I know a lot of stonefers online now and I've seen them and my God, are they some strong people, you know? But again, like you have to be careful, like anything, you have to start light and get your technique right first. So do what feels right for you. If it feels comfortable, start light, you know, start around the 40, 50, 60, 70 kilo mark and just start building reps. And as you get stronger, just keep going with that same technique. And as long as it feels comfortable, keep going with it. Uh, do you develop programming for stones? Like let's say you discover a stone and it's really heavy. Do you think about what can I do so I prep myself so I can lift that stone? Or do you just go in there like, I'm just going to make the attempt? No training required. I'm coming from Kettlebell Sports, which is strength endurance. So I mean, it, I, I never lifted heavy, you know, before. I never lifted heavy. So, I mean, I'm kind of, then I'm coming to some of the heaviest lifting stones in the world, the Irish stones. Like, they're some of the heaviest in the world. This is like the boss level now, you know? So, it's like you're coming in at some of the heaviest lifting stones in the world, but without a massive strength background. So, I mean, I've had to work really hard over the past uh, two years to, to be able to lift these stones up. Um, but, yeah, what I have done is I'm just using, like, say, a linear deadlift program, but I'm, I'm applying that with, with stone lifting. So, um, what I have is a load of different kettlebells in, in weights, out the back garden and have a nice flat stone. So I'm just using that flat stone as almost like a base. It, it weighs 90 kilos of stone and I'm stacking kettlebells on top of that and using that as almost like a deadlift strength day twice a week. So I've built that up now to where I'm like, um, I'm doubling 180 kilos off the ground. So I'm in the 90 kilo stone with the 42 and a 48 kilo kettlebell. But I've built that up over, over two years. I mean, I remember going over to the Lima Flaherty stone bread and I couldn't budge it. I couldn't get it an envelope's width off the ground and it weighs 171 kilos. I put in 16 months of training and I went back and I lifted it in front of a, a crowd about three months ago. And it was just an incredible validation for putting in hard work because like, you're not just going to be able to pick up these things straight away. You have to work at it. You know, the stone stay, stone is always going to be the same. It's always going to be the same way. The stone weighs the same from one year to the next. But like, what do you have to do to get better at lifting it? You have to get stronger. So write your program and off you go, you know. And what's been interesting about, you know, because of your work, and the work of other people reviving stone lifting in other countries and other cultures, it's starting to spread. So even if you live in the United States that doesn't have a stone lifting culture, you're actually mm-hmm. starting to see stone lifting cultures develop in the United States. I think there's some places yeah. in oh, some, there of the, is, there's, there's a, some of the states, yeah, the, lifting cultures. yeah, some of the states Utah. are developed. Yeah. Utah has got a, like a, 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 a lifting culture where there's like st- lifting stones throughout the state. Yeah, Ohio, Sean Orcard has his in Ohio as well. You have Utah, you have, then you have the guys up in Canada, the, the Edmonton Stones in, in Canada. So you've guys starting their own culture, which I just think is wonderful. You know what I mean? Because in a hundred years time, that will be a historical stone, you know? Yeah. And even in 50 years time, it will be. In 20 years time, it will be. It's like, oh, that's the stone that such and such a guy used to lift. And people will come from all over to lift it then. You know, you're starting a culture, which I just think is, is commendable. It's absolutely fantastic. And, and that's happening all over America. It's happening all over the world. People are starting their own cultures now. And like I said, in the future, you know, it's like the old man planting an acorn. He'll never see the tree, but they're planting the seeds of these stone lifting cultures that they won't see, but they, they will have cultural value in the years to come. I just think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That, that's universal across cultures. There's something about just picking up a heavy stone 
that tell it's so visceral. I think that's why people people are drawn to it. It's primal. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's primal. It's you. It's the bones of man versus the bones of the earth. You know, and you can feel it in your DNA. And it, you know what? It looks awesome, and people respond to it because, like, everybody knows a stone is heavy, and everybody knows, oh my god, look at that! I'd never be able to pick that up. You know, and some of these stones I'm looking at, I started off thinking I'll never be able to pick that up, and now I am. You know, so it's like it's it's an awesome, awesome thing. And like I said, it it it's deeply rooted, I think, in in who we are as humans. You've been doing this for two years. What has stone lifting taught you about being a man? Well, that's a good question. It's taught me perseverance. It's taught me that if you want something, you have to work for it. Sometimes it's not going to happen straight away. I mean, some people could be very lucky and just be very strong naturally, but it taught me hard work and discipline. And I'm out there in the nighttime and it gets dark at four o'clock in the evening here now. And I'm out in the dark and the cold and the rain and I'm lifting, training all winter. And then I'm going off and I'm having my day in the sun then when I go lift these stones in the summertime. And it's taught me that perseverance and willingness to put in hard work. I know that it'll take time, but you'll get there eventually. Um, and I, the same thing with kettlebell sports. It, it taught me grit. It tempered the steel. You know, you become like a, a more distilled, more potent version of yourself when you work towards something and then you get it, that feeling is just awesome. Well, you mentioned that uh, people can keep up with you on Instagram at Indiana Stones, which I, I, I love that Instagram handle. Is there anywhere else people can go to learn more about your work? Check out the GQ article as well. Um, just type in GQ and my name, David Keown, and that'll come up. And I've done a couple of, co- of cool podcasts as well, like like, like, your, like the one we're doing now. And I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much for having me on, Brett. So um, have a read and have a listen and see what you think. And anybody wants to give me some support, I have a Patreon page because it's it's expensive to be driving around Ireland, but <laughs> going to all these different places and putting all the work in. So I'd appreciate it. And I'll follow and a like as well, if you could. Fantastic. Well, David Keown, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, but I really appreciate it, man. It's long. My guest there is David Keown. You can find more information about his work at his Instagram page. It's Indiana Stones. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash stonelifting, where you find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you to listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.